July 16 is a day that lives in nuclear infamy. Yes, it is the 74th anniversary of the Trinity test of a nuclear weapon near Almogordo, New Mexico, the official start of the nuclear weapons age. But did you also know that it's the 40th anniversary of the Church Rock, New Mexico, uranium tailings pond rupture and release of 94 million gallons of radioactive mining wastewater into the Puerco River on Navajo Nation land. U.S. government so-called experts have tried to claim that there's been no real effect on life or health because of this accident. But then you hear someone who has been on the ground researching the church rock consequences for more than 30 years, and he tells you... When we took samples of urine from newborn babies, essentially their first time that they peed after they were born, we were seeing low but present concentrations of uranium in their urine. Heretofore, that was thought not to be possible because the placenta is a important barrier to the transport of contaminants from mother to baby. So now we know that that's not always true. Well, when you hear something like that from someone like Chris Shuey, you know that there's more to this low-level lie about radiation's impact on the Navajo people than the official experts admit. And this is just one more confirmation that there is that one seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, the first of two special programs focused on the Church Rock Uranium Mine Tailings Pond Spill of 1979. It happened only three months after the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster, but has been ignored by the world, until recently unknown even to many anti-nuclear activists. In an extended interview, we gain insight from the institutional memory of Chris Shuey of Southwest Research and Information Center. Chris takes us through what happened, the health impact on Navajo Nation of the tailings pond spill, the legacy of uranium mining on Navajo lands and people, the cultural views of the traditional Navajo people that makes them unwilling to leave even when the land they live on is proven to be contaminated, and much more. We'll also squeeze in some nuclear news from around the world and more honest nuclear information than Bill Gates has ever been exposed to. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, July 16, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Piketon, Ohio, where a middle school was closed after the discovery of 
radioactive contaminants both inside the school and on the grounds, the Department of Energy says, ah, it was a minor miscalculation that resulted in the underreporting of contamination in Pike County near the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant. The corrected dose remains, quote, far below health and safety standards, end quote. Except, as you will hear from today's interview, chronic exposure to low-level radiation is actually worse than a large but short-lived exposure. Fifty members of Congress have urged Trump to increase domestic uranium production, despite the fact that, as of 2015, the United States had a reserve of about 138,200 tons of uranium. That's 276,400,000 pounds of the stuff. Those who made this appeal were all Republicans from western states with mining interests. A Colorado-based company is asking for permission to ship radioactive material from Estonia in Eastern Europe to the White Mesa Uranium Mill in Utah. Right, like we don't have enough of the stuff ourselves. The mill is located only three miles from the Ute Mountain Tribes and adjacent to the Bears Ears National Monument. Poor Nevada takes it on the chin again, as the U.S. Department of Energy may have mistakenly shipped reactive nuclear material that was incorrectly labeled as low-level radioactive waste into Nevada in dozens of shipments over the past six years. Last year, DOE shipped half a metric ton of weapons-grade plutonium to the security site and did not disclose it to Nevada until months after the fact. In Congress, Representative Adam Smith, chair of the House Armed Services Committee, has proposed and won approval for an amendment in the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act for next fiscal year to prevent DOE from reclassifying high-level Hanford radioactive waste. July 16 marks 60 years since the Santa Susana Field Lab nuclear meltdown. We'll link to an article about this from Physicians for Social Responsibility on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 421. In Japan, radioactive cesium from the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster has made its way back into Japanese waters, having been measured in the East China Sea and the Sea of Japan. Researchers believe the cesium is now flowing around the Pacific Ocean again. The wreck of a Soviet nuclear submarine, which sank in 1989, has been found to be emitting radiation 100,000 times above normal level into the sea, roughly 260 miles northwest of the Norwegian coast. In Turkey, nuclear weapons material worth 72 million USD was seized in a car, and an imposing quantity of uranium was seized in a raid on smugglers in Moldova. And in Chernobyl, an abandoned digger claw from the cleanup has been found in a forest near the site, and experts fear it could be fatal to touch. That's after 33 years. Here's this week's special extended interview. On July 16, 1979, exactly 40 years ago as I am recording this, and only three months after Three Mile Island, in Church Rock, New Mexico, United Nuclear Corporation's tailings disposal pond at its uranium mill breached its dam. The accident released more radioactivity than the Three Mile Island accident, 1,100 tons of solid radioactive mill waste, and 94 million U.S. gallons of acidic radioactive tailings solution, with the same pH level 
as battery acid. The water ran into the Perco River and flowed more than 50 miles downstream to Sanders, Arizona, and beyond. It remains the largest release of radioactive material in U.S. history. Why have we not heard about it? Perhaps because it occurred on Navajo Nation land. And today's interviewee explains possible reasons for that and so much more. Chris Shuey is director of the Uranium Impact Assessment Program for Southwest Research and Information Service. He works with Navajo communities on uranium mining issues and holds the institutional memory of what has happened over the past 30-plus years to Navajo Nation's people, the land, and water because of uranium mining. When he gets asked a question, fasten your seatbelts, because his response, marked by clarity and passion, will have you learning more about native uranium mining issues than you ever knew existed. I spoke with Chris Shuey on Tuesday, July 9, 2019. Let's start out with a bit about you first. What is your background and what brought you to these issues? I'm an environmental health scientist at Southwest Research and Information Center, a nonprofit organization that's been around for almost 50 years now uh, in Albuquerque, and I've been here for 38 years. I um, started out actually as a journalist in the 1970s, and that's how I got started covering and looking into the impacts of uranium mining on the Navajo people in particular in the Four Corners area of the United States, American Southwest and have had numerous occasions over the last parts of four decades to work with uh, the, many of the communities that had uranium mining and processing when it was going on uh, into the mid-80s. And then since then, has really been dealing with what they call the legacy, what's left over from the mining and milling processes, the waste piles, 523 abandoned uranium mines on Navajo alone, part of more than 10,000 abandoned uranium mines uh, in the western United States, and just, again, a fraction of the total number of hard rock mines. There's more than 160,000 hard rock mines in the western United States, and uh, a substantial portion of those are on native lands or affecting native communities. So there's a disproportionate disparity of impacts of mining operations, including uranium, on Native American lands. And this is something that we've all been working on now for quite some time in collaboration with many of the affected communities, both in terms of the environmental impacts, contamination of air, water, land, and health studies to uh, try to figure out how this has affected the people's health, both uh, individually and uh, collectively. One of the things that I've heard repeatedly as I've spoken with people in Navajo Nation is reference to the Navajo Birth Cohort Study. What is that study? Who implemented it? And what did it take to get it started? The Navajo Birth Cohort Study is a Navajo Nation-wide public health study to determine if exposure to uranium and uranium wastes affect pregnancies and birth outcomes on the Navajo Nation. And so since 2013, we've been enrolling uh, pregnant women in the study. We're up to roughly 1,200, 1,300 pregnant women, along with uh, nearly 900 
babies. Uh, in the first phase of the study, we also had 220-some uh, fathers that were in, in, enrolled in the study. It's really the first and largest of its kind anywhere in the United States, let alone in Native America. And it came out of a time when our group, headed by Dr. Johnny Lewis at the University of New Mexico's Community Environmental Health Program, began working with people in what we call the Eastern Agency of the Navajo Nation, on the New Mexico side of the Navajo Nation, who were concerned about the high rates of kidney disease and the rapid progression to end-stage renal disease amongst the people who lived in these communities. And they asked whether this had anything to do with uranium exposure. And there had been uh, physicians at the Indian Health Service, uh, Crown Point Hospital, that uh, we had known that were asking the same questions because we were all privy to the same literature, that uh, uranium, as the heaviest metal on the face of the earth and known for its metal toxicity to the human kidney, was this part of the problem? Uh, were people drinking uranium in, in water unknowingly, exposed to mine waste? in their communities, uh, where did all this come from? And so between roughly 2001 and 2011, we uh, conducted what we called the Diné Project, the Diné Network for Environmental Health Project, specifically looking at kidney health and uranium exposure. And we have since the end of field work with that study published numerous papers on our findings related to this Diné Project. What were those findings? There were two phases, really, to the study. One was sending out our trained Navajo staff to conduct surveys and interviews uh, with people in the communities. Anyone who was greater than uh, 18 years of age was eligible to participate in the study if they volunteered. So we had originally 1,304 people that signed up for the studies in 20 chapters of the Eastern Navajo Agency. A chapter is like a community, a local governance body. And they were uh, roughly equally divided between communities that had no previous uranium mining uh, or processing or contamination and those that did. Later on, toward the end of that phase, then we went into the second phase, which was inviting people who had participated in the study to come in for blood and urine collections so that we could uh, look at biomarkers, biological markers of a wide variety of health outcomes, adverse health outcomes. We knew from our survey data, uh, which was self-reported by the people, and uh, since we took coordinates of their homes and we had all the locations of the abandoned mines, we did a geospatial study that ended up concluding that the closer you lived to uranium mine sites and the more opportunities you had in your lifetime to come in contact with uranium waste substantially increased your risk of a variety of metabolic or chronic diseases, hypertension, meaning high blood pressure, uh, kidney disease, especially during the active mining phase from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then uh, autoimmunity in what we call the environmental legacy period uh, after the mines had closed. We also noted that in the statistical analysis that if you included all of these chronic diseases together, including diabetes, that there was a significant relationship between these uh, exposures. We didn't quite, though, know what the mechanisms were. 
In other words, we could see an effect on people at the broad population level. These are population studies. But we couldn't really figure out, well, you know, was it drinking water? Was it contamination in the soils? Was it airborne? A combination of, of all those pathways. So that's why we entered into this uh, blood and urine collection phase, which we had 267 people participate in and volunteer to provide biological samples. And through that, we were able to confirm that there is a significant relationship between markers of cardiovascular disease and autoimmunity amongst people with, again, one of the metrics being the proximity to waste sites. And then, of course, there's also, we've recently detected that there appears to be a significant relationship between some of the autoimmune markers and drinking water containing uranium at concentrations a tenth of the federal drinking water standard. So the idea that the federal drinking water standard for uranium is safe is really not, in my view, true anymore. And it's a significant finding that we're seeing effects at low concentrations of uranium. The history of uranium epidemiologically and toxicologically is that roughly every 30 years, it seems, new information comes out that would necessitate lowering exposure standards for uranium. Again, uranium is a highly toxic metal. We talk about the radiation elements, and that's one of the reasons you're having this program, but uh, at the same time, uranium is in many ways far more hazardous on a long-term basis as a, as a heavy metal. Metals ingested into the body act the same way as if you didn't eat well, you know, didn't get enough exercise, plaque builds up in your circulatory system. So we see these manifestations of cardiovascular disease through the increased concentrations of various markers of inflammatory effects in the circulation system. We also saw that these autoimmune effects were taking place, uh, and with not just uranium, but with co-exposure from arsenic. And as we all know, arsenic is a very toxic metalloid, you know, been known to humans for as long as humans have been around. It's quite ubiquitous in water supplies and groundwater throughout the Four Corners area, as it is many other places in the world. And we seem to detect a immunosuppressive effect of arsenic in the drinking water, too. Additionally, you know, we were doing uh, what we call biomonitoring, which is testing a blood and urine for these various metals and metalloids, and could see a correlation between both the drinking water and the biomonitoring levels in, in people. And those were also significantly associated with these markers of autoimmunity. This was a paper that we just published back in January. From the Diné project and these findings in which proximity to waste sites, contact with waste materials, and these findings related to a cardiovascular disease and autoimmunity, gave us a priori information to start to question, well, how does this affect pregnant women and newborns? This was a concern that many people out on the Navajo Nation had had for many years. And so beginning in 2009, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention convened a series of meetings and took commentary from people 
researchers, uh, community members, uh, tribal leaders, medical personnel, and determined that the best use of federal money would be to conduct a prospective birth cohort study. So that's when we started. It took almost three years to get the approvals in place, and that led to the Navajo birth cohort study. We enrolled our first pregnant woman in February of 2013. We have just this year transitioned the Navajo birth cohort study into the broader national ECHO program run by the National Institutes of Health. ECHO is Environmental Influences on Child Health Outcomes. For your listeners who know about these things, it's essentially the resurrection of what they call the National Children's Study from about uh, two decades ago. And it amalgamates findings and participants from more than three dozen different birth cohorts throughout the United States. Ours is really the only one that is exclusively Native Americans. There are a couple of other birth cohorts that are based on uh, medical records up in South Dakota and up in Alaska, but they're not enrolling people in a community-based setting like we are. Interestingly enough, as we've moved through the birth cohort study, now we're into this phase of birth cohort study and through ECHO, we are getting more and more into uh, understanding or, or investigating, really, and then understanding the role of exposure on child development, especially cognitive development. There's a whole battery of tests that are being done with children that have, have been moving through the system. In the original birth cohort study, we could only follow, because of funding limitations, we can only follow babies through their first year. With the expansion to the ECHO program, we are now following them at least through year five, if not into their eighth year. So we'll have a much longer follow-up period to detect any kind of ongoing uh, developmental delays or developmental issues related to exposure. Amongst the salient findings so far has been that we were really kind of shocked to see that when we took samples of urine from newborn babies, you know, essentially their first time that they peed after they were born, we were seeing low but present concentrations of uranium in their urine. Heretofore, that was thought not to be possible because the placenta is a important barrier to the transport of contaminants from mother to baby. So now we know that that's not always true. Also, during that first year, we were seeing increasing concentrations of uranium in the urine of newborns. We still don't know where it's coming from. Only about 14% of our participants in the study so far live within five kilometers of an abandoned uranium mine. You know, uranium is a ubiquitous element on the face of the earth. It's more plentiful than gold. And so there is a baseline of uranium that's in the crust of the earth and therefore on the surface of the earth. When we did home environmental assessments for the women that was enrolled in the study, we found that about 86% of the homes we tested had detectable levels of uranium in dust in the home. Now, somebody may say, what does that compare to? We're not we're not quite sure yet. It seems to be a large percentage because the study is a cross-sectional approach, meaning anybody anywhere in the Navajo Nation who wants to enroll can enroll. 
the only criteria is you meet certain age requirements, you have a confirmed pregnancy, you lived on the Navajo Nation for at least five years of your life, and you're eligible for Indian Health Service services. So we don't discriminate or we just don't go out into uranium mining impacted communities and try to enroll, enroll, enroll in those places, right? So we're getting this cross-section of information uh, from uh, pregnant women on the Navajo Nation. As a side result, we've also found through the blood and urine testing that we do for the pregnant women that there's a really widespread deficiencies in key nutrients such as zinc, iodine in particular. Zinc is really important at the correct levels because it helps to maintain the cellular DNA repair functions if something were to go wrong. Uranium and arsenic, arsenic in particular, are known to disrupt those repair mechanisms with certain proteins that are in cells and in the DNA of the cells. By supplementing people's diet with uh, zinc, we think that we can reverse and restore those protective measures that the body already has. And so that gave way as a result of doing all that through the birth cohort, now into ECHO, through our University of New Mexico Superfund Research Center that was just approved two years ago, we have launched a thinking zinc intervention clinical trial in which we're going to test the theory that uh, supplementing people's diet with uh, the recommended daily allowance of zinc will actually lessen metal levels in their urine and blood. We just started that just this year, and that'll take another two years to, to do that. Again, we published a number of papers all documenting these things that I'm saying, one of which Dr. Lewis and others, including myself, we worked on a, a paper that broadly examined our concerns about um, metals exposure and child development. There are notorious cases of ill health amongst Diné Navajo children born to women who lived in the uranium-impacted areas, developing a condition colloquially known as Navajo neuropathy. The scientific community is split on whether this effect in the children is a result of environmental exposures or the result of genetic, the appearance of essentially uh, recessive genes that combine to form this effect uh, characterized by liver function, degradation, and degradation of the mobility of the extremities, especially the hands. Children with this condition rarely live into their double digits. The longest person that had been diagnosed with this uh, disease lived to be 37 years old. But most of the folks that acquired it passed away when they were, you know, one, two, three, four years old. And it's a devastating condition. And it remains controversial to even bring it up because the official view of the Indian Health Service in some physicians is that it's totally genetic. Problem is that on the Navajo Nation, there remains a moratorium on doing any health studies that involve looking at the genetic composition of what makes people Diné Navajo. Why is that? That was a policy decision that the Navajo Nation made through its Human Research Review Board back in 2001 and two ratified by the Navajo Nation Council. The concern at the time, especially amongst the medicine people, uh, the traditional medicine people, was that 
the DNA is a sacred material. It is private. It is not to be discussed, really. It's something sanctified inside the human body. Now, there is a process that has been underway for a couple of years now in which the Navajo Nation is going through a policy discussions to lift the moratorium or to clarify it so that some genetic studies can actually proceed. Uh, there's quite a lot of support for that within the Navajo Nation, especially among some uh, elected officials and Navajo Diné medical people. So that could change here shortly. The point is that there's evidence that this condition, along with other developmental issues, may be related to environmental exposures. We get asked a lot, why aren't you looking at cancer? We're like anybody else. We go to the communities, and the first thing you hear is cancer this, cancer that. It's a very pervasive concern. On the other hand, starting with the Danette Project and going through the birth cohort study, uh, now into our Thinking Zinc Project, we're really kind of tackling a much broader category of health problems by assessing these chronic diseases and the attributable risk from environmental exposures to chronic disease. That's never been done before. There's no so-called smoking gun. You put all of this information from successive studies together and you look at the evidence in a whole. This is for people who are exposed at the community level, in the population. There is little doubt, given the epidemiology and medical history of the underground uranium workers, especially on the Navajo Nation, that exposure to uranium in mining, in processing, and ore hauling was a significant risk for development of lung cancer and non-malignant respiratory disease. There's almost two dozen different studies over the last 70 years related to that, plus, of course, the world was privy to the studies done in the 1500s and 1600s on the Czechoslovakian pitch blend miners, and that, you know that's a form of uranium ore, and they had uh, lung disease during that time. We see lung disease in the standard population, but again, the bigger population is also has all these co-exposures, uh, existing health problems, different lifestyle exposures. So we're trying to figure out what is the contribution from just living in an environment in which you may be involuntarily exposed to waste materials that you had no role in approving that they are there in your community. The whole notion behind the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People at the, at the level of the United Nations is the concept of, of free, prior, and informed consent. Believe me, in the uranium mining history, beginning in the 1940s in the United States, there was no such thing. The government sought fissile material for the nuclear weapons program and did everything it could to encourage development of uranium, or the government was the sole owner of uranium concentrates called source material up uh, through essentially 1970-71, and so, to a large extent, the government is responsible, its policies to promote the development of uranium to build weapons of mass destruction makes the government one of the biggest responsible parties 
for this legacy of health problems within the worker communities and now more broadly, adverse health outcomes amongst the populations in uranium-impacted communities. Given the government's owning of this material and being responsible for it being dug up and made so generally into the environment, do you think that there was any element in this of institutional racism? to ignore the fact that anything bad was happening or could happen because these are native lands as opposed to a more general population? Well, I think that uh, you just look at the fact pattern. Uranium does occur in the Four Corners area and throughout the West in rocks, right? It's also in rocks in Virginia (laughs) and places on the East Coast. The history of the development of the United States of America toward its indigenous people has been one of genocide, of assimilation, of domination, conquering, being conquered, and then dependency. You know, my personal view as a white guy from Ohio is that uh, our society has looked at Native people as an expendable population. I'm not sure that anyone back in the 1940 thought ahead to say, well, we're going to get the uranium out of the ground here, and that's going to create disproportionate impacts on Navajo people and Native people, and this is institutional racism. They didn't, that, that wasn't part of their lexicon at that time. It was get the uranium out of the ground because we need to build bombs to, one, fight off either the Germans or the Japanese in World War II and then the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But it clearly has resulted in these disproportionate impacts. And the fact that we don't pay attention to uh, these impacts, just as we haven't paid attention to the degradation of the native land base in North America, the United States, Canada, it's all a pattern of institutional racism toward native people. I hear to this day, People make comments like, oh, well, the Indians, you know, we conquered them and they ought to be like us now. Well, that's just ignorant. Native people have not just their own spiritual and cultural reference points, just as we descendants of Euro America have, and we have really just become educated a little bit over the last several years in indigenous science, how Native people intimately understand the relationship between the universe and the Mother Earth and the role of the five-fingered people, meaning the humans, on the Mother Earth. And it's hard for a non-Native to describe this without sounding all romanticized, right? It's very real. It's a very important and valid scientific approach the Native people have had to their surroundings. And we you know, hear all this about, well, you know, they're all connected to the land and all this, but that's just superficial. There's a deep understanding that is incorporated into the lives of Native people. For instance, when you get a situation like out of Church Rock, where you're going this weekend for the 40th anniversary of the 1979 uranium tailings dam break and spill, And you see the community, the Redwater Pond Road community, where people still live between two of the biggest abandoned uranium mines on the Navajo Nation, 
around the corner is the tailings pile with with the uranium mill where the accident took place in 79. And you think of all the exposure that has taken place, because those folks have pictures that go back four generations before the mines came and then after the mines came. And you say, well, why aren't they moving? Why don't they just get out of there and get, get away from the risk? There are cultural practices that keep people on the land. Now, again, you don't want to romanticize this very much. Yeah, there's more people who identify as, as Diné or Navajo live off the Navajo Nation these days than who live on. But for those who still live on, whether they have their umbilical cords may be buried at their birthplace, other manifestations of their lives that connect them to that land, to that spot on the face of the earth, those are strong emotional, spiritual connections, right? And, you know, as you'll find out when you go out there, the folks there want their land restored. They want to return to a time when they could have confidence that they're sending their kids and grandkids out to play in a not contaminated area, which up until, you know, uh, roughly... Uh, 2002, they didn't know until we were invited into the community and showed people how to run basic radiation detection instruments and found that their backyards were literally contaminated beyond what would be considered safe to live on. That precipitated in a series of removal actions ordered by uh, US EPA out of San Francisco toward the, one of the responsible companies to essentially scrape up and get rid of all this contaminated soil around people's homes. This great level of trauma occurred as a result of being moved temporarily. People in the dominant society give short shrift to the notion that there is environmental trauma. And in this community, you know, the mining companies came the community had been established. I mean, they have grazing documents for their sheep that go back into the 1920s. One of the families had one of the original letters from the BIA commissioner back in 1937 during the forced livestock reduction days, in which it says, you now have X amount of sheep, you have to get rid of them. And if you don't get rid of them, we will come out and get rid of them for you. Within the Navajo Nation, within the Diné population, there are seminal events of trauma. One was the long walk between 1864 and 1868. The other was the Indian Reorganization Act and the forced livestock reductions of the 1930s, in which federal agents literally came out and shot sheep dead in the fields. And then the forced relocation through the government-manufactured Navajo-Hopi land dispute of the 70s and 80s. Uh, so there's these huge black pages of history. In this particular community, there's not only the uranium mines that came beginning in, in the mid-60s into the late-60s, but about that time, the young men of the community were going off to Vietnam, and many didn't come back. Those who did came back scarred emotionally and physically. The only job to have was in the underground uranium mines. In the 70s, the mining industry kind of liberalized to you know, use a really not a very good word for it, but that was when they started hiring women. And these were young women out of high school 
folks who worked underground, highly exposed in jobs in the underground uh, mining environment, and suffered health effects as a result of that. Then years later, after the long after the mines had closed, jobs had gone away. The waste dumps were still around. The companies just left them, did very little to control releases. We'd been around for a long time. We know the uh, methods of environmental assessment, and we can teach those to people, which we did. So, you know, then you jump forward into the early 2000s, and now folks in that community are learning that all these years they've been living with all this contamination. And so you can imagine the guilt that parents and grandparents felt knowing or being told and and seeing for their own eyes on these instruments that uh, their kids were playing in this contaminated environment. So it's just been one cycle of trauma after another. I don't know how to explain this to the dominant society, people who just have no idea about native populations and people other than these superficial, racist images. You know, I can't watch an Atlanta Braves game because of the stupid tomahawk chop. It's so offensive. Using words like redskins to name a football team is offensive. And it is for the vast majority of native people that I know and of course, you're always going to be able to trot somebody out, a Native American person wearing you know, the logo of the Washington NFL team. I call them the pejoratives. But those are few and far between. The vast majority of Native people object to those images. And because of all of this horrific history, so beyond these studies that we've done, beyond the findings of health impacts from exposures, There's also, I think, a a strong view on many people's parts that there's a protective factor of resiliency that many Native people have unconsciously adopted in order to survive. So the Diné people have preserved their language. Being able to learn and speak Navajo was one of the tasks that I took on not very well, but tried, and you learn, you have so much more insight into the culture when you know where the language comes from and what it means, and reteaching that language so that little kids now growing up are starting to speak Navajo again at a very early age. There was a period of time for a couple of generations where that just wasn't done. It was discouraged, but it's coming back. And there's a lot of really important and positive things that are moving the people ahead, I think. And speaking from the position of an outsider looking in and having the privilege and and honor to be invited in, I think it's remarkable that there's something to think positive about as we go forward into the future generation. One of the things that Dr. Lewis and one of our other colleagues at the University of Mexico, Dr. Matt Campen, Uh, Melissa Gonzalez, other the professors there that we have done through our Superfund Research Center now with uh, NIH, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences funding, is to begin the process of developing the next generation of scientists, Western scientists, but of Native people, largely young Native women. 
with PhDs, doing postdoctoral work, master's degrees, or getting their master's degrees, going to grad school, and to listen to them talk about the intersection of their traditional cultural teachings and their Western bench science, environmental science, biomedical science, uh, how they relate to, to plant tissue, animal tissue, human tissue that they deal with is remarkable. Again, it's an exciting thing to see for those of us who have been kind of, again, on the outside looking in, but invited in. And you can postulate that the future is very bright when these young scientists become the leaders of tomorrow. They're already leaders today, but they're going to be at the forefront of not only their science, their biomedical science, their environmental science, but they're going to be at the forefront of political movements within Native communities, I think. We'll continue with this week's special extended interview with Chris Shuey on the Church Rock uranium tailing spill disaster and Navajo Nation's ongoing uranium mining issues in just a moment. But first... My thanks to all of you who contributed to my journey to Navajo Nation to cover the 40th anniversary commemoration of the Church Rock uranium tailing spill. I'm back with more than 50 recorded interviews taken on site, which will be edited together. Fingers crossed that it will be in time for next week's nuclear hot seat. I couldn't have gotten to New Mexico without your help, and I'm deeply grateful for it. Nuclear Hot Seat exists to report on and record our shared nuclear history, what has happened in the past, how we got into this mess, what we face on a daily basis, our challenges, setbacks, victories, and with the show, we have it in an audio archive for the future, our own little trail of breadcrumbs through the nuclear forest. Being able to occasionally travel to cover major stories like Church Rock is important, but there's a show every week. And the one constant we face is the regular monthly expense of running it. Your support is vital for Nuclear Hot Seat to be able to continue. So if you've ever thought about supporting this show, hey, how about now? You can send a donation of any size by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red Donate button. And if you'd like to support Nuclear Hot Seat on an ongoing basis, but you're on a budget... There's also a big green donate button that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. Know that your donations have been an essential part of my bringing you the story of Church Rock and actually bringing you the show itself. So whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, back to this week's featured extended interview with Chris Shuey of Southwest Research and Information Center on Navajo Nation uranium issues. Given that this weekend we're going to be having the commemoration of the 40th anniversary of the uranium tailings dam break and the spill Mm -hmm. into the Puerco River and the surrounding land, these days how bad is the exposure level around the Puerco River as a result of that uranium tailings spill? And is it demonstrably worse than other areas in Navajo Nation? That's a tough question to answer because there's about several different subparts to it. First of all, the tailing spill itself was a humongous disaster, but it was a one-time shock loading of the Puerco River system with contaminants. 
1,100 tons of uranium mill tailings were released along with 94 million gallons of wastewater. That wastewater was acidic. It had a pH of one and a half. So people who waded into it unknowingly after the spill, animals that waded into the river were burned on their feet. That's apart from, that's an acute health effect that was apart from any radiation or heavy metal exposure. Today, and you know, going back through the various studies that have been done in that area, we tend to think that the effects of the spill were generally pretty short-lived in a demonstrable way, but it was the roughly, you know, almost 30 years of the dewatering of the underground uranium mines in that area. These are underground mines that are in the neighborhood of 900 to 1,800 feet deep. And the uranium occurs in a sandstone formation that is also a regional aquifer. So the water that accumulates in the mines underground had to be pumped out. You can't have miners running around in scuba gear. And it was pumped out beginning in the 60s and into the 70s. Not treated, no concern for the contaminants in the mine water until roughly the late 70s when the Clean Water Act came into effect and was applied to these discharges. And even after the time that the companies were to treat the water to comply with standards, they were doing a miserable job. They weren't complying with the standards. And even if they had complied with the standards 100% of the time, those standards were not useful to Certainly for humans not to drink, could not drink that water coming out of the mines, and animals shouldn't have drank that water coming out of the mines, but that was not the message. The message from the companies to the local communities was, oh, yeah, you guys can have all the mine water you want to. We think that we see today the effects of the mine water discharges, the slow movement of a uranium contamination front farther downstream into eastern Arizona around the town of Sanders, which is just south of the reservation, Navajo Reservation boundary, but includes also what is called the new lands, federal lands that were given to the Navajo Nation to replace those that they lost in the Navajo-Hopi land settlement back in the um, 70s and 80s and 90s. And that was a situation in which there was a community on private land that was being served uranium-contaminated water for at least 12 years, if not longer, through a public water system. And we today don't know what, we hear what people in that community say are their health problems, but that we've never done, nobody has ever asked to have a health study done. It took work by my colleague, uh, Dr. Tommy Rock, he was at Northern Arizona University at the time, and myself and others, to document that uh, folks in this community were drinking contaminated water. We did the testing, we confirmed the testing, we told the community. Largely the community was appreciative of being told, but there was a lot of bite back. Oh, you're scaring the people. And the state of Arizona, Department of Environmental Quality fell asleep at the wheel, did not enforce the uranium standard, could have cared less. And then we come to find out that their lackadaisical attitude toward it was backed by US EPA Region 9. So what good is a drinking water standard for uranium or any other contaminant if you consciously refuse to enforce the standard? So the long-term effects of both the spill and the mine dewatering in combination are still, in my view, evident many miles downstream. 
Now, if I take you down to the North Fork of the Puerco this weekend, and we bring out our radiation monitoring devices, you really won't see anything uh, on the bottom of the riverbed that looks like it's you know, different from background, from normal conditions. That's because these ephemeral streams scour. They move contaminated materials from one point to the next point, and they keep, that process keeps going on for years and decades. It is there. It, you know, second law of thermodynamics doesn't you know, allow any of these contaminants to be discreated. They're there somewhere, and they're just moving farther and farther downstream. So you ask, is it safe to be there? Well, we have surveyed a lot of the areas around which the Redwater Pond Road people conduct their uh, annual march to commemorate the tailing spill. And we pretty much know the areas that we can go in and take people in that are still at background or have been cleaned up to background. And so, you know, we're pretty confident that we're not inadvertently exposing people that shouldn't be exposed. On the other hand, you have to understand that living in these communities over all these generations, these exposures have occurred incrementally and in small amounts at the same time. Through our work over in a mine site on the Navajo Nation in near Blue Gap, Tachi, Arizona, we've discovered that these mine sites, mine waste, have this thin veneer of submicron, nanoparticles if you'd like, that are deeply inhalable. We've got photographs of them in microscopy that was done work that was done at the University of New Mexico. And there has been experiments with the dust being aspirated to mice and them showing a pulmonary toxicity response immediately. So somebody may argue, well, you're giving the mice more than the people get. Yeah, but the people have gotten it over generations. This gives us clues to, going back to the discussion about the Diné Project results, the closer you live and the more opportunities you had to come in contact with the material substantially increases your risk of these chronic diseases. We think that the air pathway is part of that exposure pattern. And we're continuing to look at that in great detail now. And I can tell you that, you know, we, part of our Superfund Center's work is not only with the communities, but we're supposed to relay our findings to US EPA other federal agencies to help them make better decisions about cleaning up Superfund sites, which include all the uranium, abandoned uranium mines. And I don't know. doesn't seem like uh, many of the federal officials are interested in those data. They have their own program, and it's very difficult to get them to pay attention to the metal contents of these wastes and their physical characteristics that exacerbate exposures to the people who live around them. So there's a lot of work left to do. I, I tell people, especially younger groups, you know, many of us have been working on this for two generations now almost. You're going to be working on it for another two or three or four generations. We're just setting the stage. This is going to be a long-term problem that is going to require a lot of attention and a lot of work at these local levels to give some relief and justice to the people who live around there so that they can continue to live in their homeland. Chris, this is a tremendous amount of information and great clarity. And for someone on the outside who hasn't been exposed to it before, a shocking story of what has been done to Navajo Nation and people on it. 
And I look forward to following up with you this Saturday when we go on the march in Navajo Nation and also to continue to be in contact with using you as a source for nuclear hot seat. Well, thank you, Libby. I appreciate your opportunity to talk. Chris Shuey of Southwest Research and Information Center. We'll post a link to the Navajo Birth Cohort Study on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 421. Next week, for our second Church Rock special, we'll hear from Navajo elders who lived through the disastrous uranium mining tailings pond spill, a miner who was on site the day it happened, members of the Redwater Pond Road community, who continue to live less than a mile from the spill site and between two abandoned uranium mines, and concerned citizens from as far away as Japan who converged at Church Rock for the 40th anniversary commemoration march to show solidarity for the Navajo people and press for an immediate, long-past-due cleanup. It will be a powerful, highly emotional nuclear hot seat next week, so stay tuned. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 16, 2019. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow opt-in box, and sign up for weekly email links to the show. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of of the art of communicating, reminding you that minimizing nuclear radiation's impact might lull some people into feeling safe. But words don't change scientific facts, and radiation doesn't listen, so it's just going to keep destroying whatever it comes into contact with, whether that's what you believe it's doing or not. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we're all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.